Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, now to the Tezisrachag, now to Yami and Toby, and we're over. I really shouldn't be doing this even today because uh strapped for time, but I'm going to try to get back on my schedule. Uh, it's a happily busy week at the cat's house. Oh, my daughter Rivka just had a baby boy, so we might be looking at a British shop, as you can imagine how uh, upside down everything is, uh, thank God. But uh, I'm going to try to squeeze in this little moment uh, to do a little bit, um, because the perfect is the enemy of the good. And I see that tomorrow's the yard to the Sam Silver, even though I shouldn't really undertake to do this, because that's a giant subject. But all these people I deal with are really a giant subject, so I'll just try to 10, 20, 30 minutes to, uh, once again, as I've been trying to do, give a kind of, um, what shall I say, just a, a basic biography, who these people are taking them out of the realm of a vort here or a legend there. Just get a, a basic biography. But i got to tell you a, a funny story very quickly. Friend of mine was in shoulders when he comes to me afterwards. Oh, good friend of mine, and he says, "I got to tell you a story I heard on Yontif that when the Vilna Gaon died, they were all depressed in the Velozhny Shiva and Chaim Velozhny. I told him a whole story about no, it's actually a good time because the girl would be glad to come back and be able to do more missus, things like that." And I said, "Well, the story's not true. How do you know the story's not true?" Well, the Vilna Gaon died in 1797, and Velozhny Shiva started in 1804. You know, in other words, a lot of times anachronism is is a, a major element of the Baba Mises we hear in the film world. Um, and when the dates don't work, it kind of tells you something. But uh, it's a good story anyway. Anyway, to get back to what I was talking about, I see tomorrow is the Yartz of Chassam Sofer, who lived from 17, uh, let me see, 1763, 1762 to 1839. So that means he wasn't 80. He died in his late 70s. He's somewhere to live to be 75, 80 years old, something like that. 77, 78. And uh, Samsa was one of the great figures in Jewish history, certainly in modern era. Um, he was born in Frankfurt, although his family wasn't German originally. I mean, they, I mean, generation back, they came from Poland. Uh, that's the way it is with a lot of German Jews. Very few Jews are real Yekis that all the way through their family stayed in Germany. Um, very often, uh, the Jews from different parts of Germany were kicked out, went to Poland, and then centuries later came back. So uh, here's somebody who grew up in the Frankfurt ghetto, which is two very narrow streets, a very unhealthy, uh, very bad living conditions. And in the middle of all this, it wasn't a slum. I mean, it was a slum. It was a slum. But it wasn't like slum people. But they developed the whole Jewish community, as we know, uh, with schools, yeshivas, and all the rest of it. It was kind of interesting. The Chassam Silver came from an aristocratic rabbinical background, by which I mean a family, uh, not rich necessarily, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, famous uh, learners, and uh, his great-great-grandfather was Marshishach, you know, somebody earlier in, in um, Frankfurt, who'd been to Rav there for a while, so Shmuel Shatten. Uh, the story of Chassam Silver goes like this, as I understand it. Uh, he was one of these, he was a genius, you know, very young age, very smart and all that. That is true. And uh, the trouble is, 
His parents, particularly his father, did not know how to handle that. You see this once in a while. If you have a very gifted child, it becomes a great challenge what to do. Um, you have to treat it very gingerly because if you push them in this direction, it might turn out to be nuts. You put them in that direction, it might turn out to be unsatisfied. It's, it's, uh, it requires a great deal of chachma and philosophy how to raise a potential god or a potential genius. And his father wasn't like that. Apparently, the story goes. And Safalikatura, again, he did the old fashioned rabbinic way, which is make him learn day and night, night and day, no time for playing or anything, this kind of stuff. Now, some kids take to it, doesn't bother them. If you read the Hakdoma, the Note of Yehuda, he says, My father wouldn't let me play, but now I look back, it was a good thing. But the Psalm Sover, apparently, the young Moshe Sover didn't necessarily like that. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the father was less, too much meat as a din, let's put it that way. Not of Misa Rachman a harsh taskmaster, because he said this kid can grow up to be a goro. And uh, they must have had their altercations. And what's very famous is that the Psalm service Bar Mitzvah, the father, they, they prepared a whole pshatel to say over. And he said, based on this and this and this, the Psalm Sover did, the young Moshe Sover, this occasion when my great-great-grandfather said the Marshishach. And the father was so angry, instead of saying, oh, it's very good, you know, one way of looking at things is, if you're the son of the Pnei Yeshua or Nebi Huda, and you can upslug or something like this, the father will actually be happy. In other words, I want a son who's in learning, and uh, the best thing you can do is he upslugs me like Rashi with relationship to the Balitosis. He didn't mind it. That's one way of looking at it. Now, here's another way of looking at it. How dare you contradict something from your Zaydi, and your Zaydi, Zaydi, they were Kodesh Kedushim, and your aunt, a worm, how can you even think about saying anything in opposition? And the story is, the father got so angry at the young Moshe Sofer, who was bar mitzvah, he went and slapped him publicly for that. First of all, you tell me what kind of smart idea that, in terms of child raising, in general, to slap a kid, A, and B, in public, and C, as bar mitzvah in the middle of the speech. I mean, you just tell me that. The result is, the story goes, that some sort of fled the scene and basically never spoke to his father again. And, you know, there was a family crisis, at which point... What are you going to do? Uh, he was taken in by this 30-year-old uh, rich guy named Nelson Adler, who was uh, rich, aristocratic, big Talmud Chacham, of course, uh, got his own in Frankfurt, a little bit off the regular. You know, he, he dumps Faradit and all this kind of stuff. But he's a big Talmud Chacham, obviously. And he said to the father, because uh, the father came to see him, and he said, listen, uh, let me put it this way. If you get together with him, you get into a fight. And second of all, he never will speak to you again. I mean, he doesn't want to ever talk to you again. He hates you so much. Uh, and he's going to go off to Derek. I mean, I see. He's going to come down from. Because what you did was the opposite of smart parenting. And uh, on the other hand, I have a good cashier with him. And with me, he'll learn and all the rest. So you leave him in my hands. We're all here living in the ghetto of Frankfurt. It's only two, three blocks long anyway. And uh, if you let me be the father, so to speak, uh, then I will raise him the Torah la Voda, and he will he will turn into the gadol that you're looking for. Uh, but you've got to be out of the picture. Now the mother will do all the intermediary talking, and that's what happened. So here's a boy, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. It's really interesting because we have these kids at risk now. You know, you think of these situations, family problems. Who's in Frankfurt and is learning up a storm, and he's boxing ice, as they say all under the tutelage of uh, Nelson Adler, uh, who was in his 30s. 
Um, he was like, the, the uh, I don't know, he was uh, uh, not much older than than him. I mean, he was old. He was 21 years older, actually, to be exact. So if this is Bar Mitzvah time, truth is he already knew him from beforehand. So he came there when he was like 9 or 10 years old, learned with him. But without getting into all those details, he was a teenager growing up. And anytime they want to communicate with the father, they do through the mother. And uh, he learned up a storm. Uh, was very devoted to Nelson Adler, as you can imagine, by what I'm describing. Uh, eventually, though, the eccentricities of Rabbi Nelson Adler ticked off the Yeki authorities in um, Frankfurt. And, uh, you know, because he died, like I say, Safara did, and they duchened, and a lot of things I'm sure you probably heard one time, or go look it up, Rabbi Nelson Adler. It wasn't the, the regular. And uh, they eventually kicked him out of town. Um, they never said he's a shop or anything like that because everybody knew that's not true. But to deviate so much from the norm was considered uh, strange and dangerous. And you know, I'm sure he had his kolel and his talmidim probably walked around and said, "We're better than the other guys, and you're just a bunch of dumb balabatim, and you follow the old men, hug them, and our Rebbe knows better." You know, something like that. And uh, the story is that the young Moshe Silver followed him when he left town, and I believe he never came back. And so. And Nelson Adler uh, left and eventually wandered around uh, from Frankfurt throughout Germany and Central Europe looking for a final stellar. This is when he's famously passed through Prague and uh, here's Moshe Sofer, who's a young guy, I mean, 20 or whatever, something like that. And uh, he is attending sessions in which his rabbi, Nelson Adler, is sitting down and debating with the note of Yehudu, who was the rabbi in Prague at that time. I'm just saying, he's there, you know, uh, what shall I say, when historic things are happening. I recall that the object of their discussions had to do, something's no gay to me because I'm a Kohen, had to do with, you know, hospital questions and Kivri Akim time of Oel, what about non-Jewish uh, graves and, you know, uh, being in the same building. A lot of those kind of interesting uh, questions. And, you know, the Shittas arrive at about whether Kohanim or Matsuba, Bafushi, Tumba, Bismanazeh, all that kind of stuff. You can look it up in your day if you're really into If you're one of the, if you're a learner listening to this, you can look it up in your day and help us. Um, Avelis, I guess, Tumas Kohanim, I mean. And, because uh, they discuss it there. And, and, uh, and then he moved on. Finally, the Rebbe ended up with a job in Bohemia in a community, not a very large community, Boskowitz. And he settled there for a number of years and eventually returned to Frankfurt. The Sam Sofer, Moshe Sofer, didn't do that. Uh, he moved on and went to uh, Moravia, which is kind of interesting. This is a place I've talked about before in which, um, what shall I say, it's a part of Jewry It's not really known so well. He went to Prosnitz, which is an important Jewish community, small but important Jewish community in Moravia. Uh, what's interesting is he didn't have smich or anything like that as you'll see in a minute. Uh, but on the other hand, he uh, certainly was already a boxing guy, so to say a guttle, and he clearly was a charismatic, what you and I today would call a charismatic Rebbe or Rosh Hashiva type, in the sense of being able to draw boys to him and handle with them and learning and talk real, you know, talk and learn with them in an enthusiastic way. That talent he certainly had. Uh, you know, that's like one of his main things. And... Uh, over there, he's in, uh, first town was in Prosnitz, and then, how's it go? And he wasn't involved there because he didn't have smicha, but on the other hand, uh, eventually, uh, you know, uh, what's, let's put it this way, 
what's going to happen to you, he wasn't married yet, and that was very weird, because if he was born in 1762, he was already like 25 years old, something like that, and um, 27, 28 years old, uh, till he got married, something along those lines. It was unusual, because usually got married in, the, in that world, you know, when you were in your teens, or very early 20s. And he ended up marrying uh, a girl from Prosnitz, uh, Sarah Malka, who... Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, she was the sister of his best friend. And uh, and she was older than him. That's really uh, interesting. She was older than him. And uh, they were married for many years till she died, and she couldn't have kids. Uh, but he would not divorce her. Uh, you know, they were married like uh, something like 20 years. 20, no, uh, uh, 25 years, 26 years. So think about that. And um, anyway... He wanted already to move not only to be Rosh Hashiva, but to, he was offered positions in other small communities in Moravia. Uh, it's part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in uh, when he was, let's see, about 30, 32, he said, I guess, there's an opening to be a rav somewhere. He didn't have semicha. Uh, but the, and not only that, you can't be a rabbi in Moravia. I think I mentioned this to you earlier, uh, which was a highly centralized and organized set of communities, unless the chief rabbi of Moravia gave you a smicha. That time was Mordechai Benet. And so, it's this funny story. Here's this young person uh, in his early 30s, it was really hot stuff, uh, Moshe Sofer, and he's writing Mordechai Benet, he says, listen, I can get a job over here as rabbi, but I need a smicha from you, which he gave him, of course. And uh, he served there for, for a couple years. These all happening in the 1790s, in his 30s, uh, in these uh, small Moravian towns. Uh, as Rabbi Dresnitz, it was called. And then he went to one of the Sheva Kehillas, the seven communities which are in the Austro-Hungarian border in Matersdorf, which everybody today thinks is a neighborhood in Jerusalem. And there was a town in the Austro-Hungarian border. It's one of the seven Kehillas. With my group, we were there, not in Matersdorf, but in uh, Eisenstadt, which was another one of the uh, seven Kehillas in the Austro-Hungarian borderlands. These were very intense, small, but very uh, strongly Jewish uh, communities, Oberlanders, they called them, like semi-Yakis, and uh, he fit in very well over there, and he was there for about seven, eight years as the Rav in Matisdorf, and that's where he started to become the Chassam that's what I mean, because then he could be a Rav, which he was, and he also started the Yeshiva, and uh, because that's what rabbis did, I told you, man, I just don't want to repeat myself, being a Rav at that time, Av Basin meant you are the Rav of the town, and you run the Basin and all that sort of thing, but you also organize the yeshiva which you teach boys and it depends how good you are and how much money you can raise how many boys you get and how many, who you can attract and he was very attractive he was very um uh, uh, boys went to him and uh, here you have this small town Montessori starts to have like impressive uh, school there uh for this but he was childless remember that in 1806 which would be about eight years after being in Montessori all this is happening, by the way, right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, it doesn't matter to him. And he became, he was finally elected rabbi of the big community. So it's a classic rabbinical um, career story. Smart in a tiny town in town, then you move to a little bit bigger town, bigger town, until you finally get a big hill in his case. I think we all know it was Pressburg, which today's Bratislava was the capital. Today's the capital of Slovakia. At that time, Slovakia didn't exist. So it's all part of something called the Kingdom of Hungary. The Kingdom of Hungary... Is a, is a country that no longer exists. Now you have the Republic of Hungary. But the Kingdom of Hungary was gigantic compared to the current Hungary. It's about five, six times. And uh, this is under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
it's the Austrian Emperor, it's the King of Hungary. And Hungary at that time included uh, what you call today Hungary, plus Slovakia, plus half of Romania, what they call Transylvania, plus part of uh, Serbia, uh, plus other parts. No, it was a big hunk of territory. And at that time, the capital was not Budapest, but it was Pressburg, or Pozsonyi, the Hungarians called it, or Bratislava, as the Slovaks called it. And it was an important community, and therefore you might say he reached the top of the rung. Uh, now he's in an A-level Kehela. From there you can go back to Frankfurt, or to uh, Metz, or to Vilna, you know, those kind of places, Hamburg, the big communities. And uh, they took him in, let's put it this way, in 1806, right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, just when the Haskala was really starting to penetrate into Hungary. It's very interesting. And there are a lot of Bubba mice out there, and I don't have the time to go into a lot of them because I'm strapped for time over here. just want to deal with, like I say, just got a timeline. Here he was a rabbi from 1806 till he died for 33 years because he died in 1839. That was his last stop. Although I remember he did want at one point to become the rabbi in Firth, but that fell through. Um, so Lemaise, he remained for the rest of his life in Pressburg. And here, first of all, uh, he emerged as really, you know, a dominant figure because he was one of these people who excelled in several areas. Uh, first of all, uh, he was a rove now. And so he had already started to get shalos from everybody. And now, ten times as many. People start sending him shalos from all over Europe and beyond. And beyond. And this is what eventually formed what we call the shalos and shivas of Hassam Silver, uh, which you see from all over the place. And uh, so right off the bat, the, the, the fact that he's a, a, a meshiv, a writer of response literature, puts him in a certain class. In addition to that, he excelled in his uh, being Rosh Hashiva, because he built probably the biggest yeshiva. I think he had like six, seven hundred guys there. I've seen smaller figures, but I believe I'm right. Uh, which means uh, the boys were just voluntarily walking to uh, Pressburg to learn under him and sleep on cold stone floors. A lot of these guys write their memoirs. They got rheumatism and arthritis and junk from the bad conditions and there's new food. It was, you know, it was tough going, and they were willing to do it. Now, yeshiva over there was, means teenagers mainly. And uh, that means that he was able to organize into several classes, as you can imagine. And I just want you to take yourself out of books and put yourself in real life. Pressburg is a, is a nice-sized town, but it's not gigantic at all. Especially in those days, it was not gigantic at all. Um, um, I would say the Jewish community in the time of Tom Sofer was like 2,500 people altogether, uh, Jewish. And the guy, I'm not sure. I would think something like 20,000, something like that. So it's not gigantic at all. So the reason I'm mentioning these figures to you are, imagine if you have a relatively small Jewish community of 2,000 people, this is what? couple hundred families, that's it. So, uh, total. And in a relatively small, they had like a ghetto. It's not exactly a ghetto, but a Jewish neighborhood. And that sort of thing. Now, you have 2,000 people total, men, women, and children. And you have a Rav who brings in a couple hundred boys for his own private yeshiva. So where do these guys stay? They're all over the place. They're in your face. You understand? Wherever you go, you see yeshiva. So you could say it's a glorious thing. We say it's not. Um, the reason I mention that, therefore, is that Pressburg at that time was undergoing a cultural change. 
uh, a left wing was developing, as we would call today in Hungarian Jewry, as part of a very broad historical development. Now it's not time to go into it. There are many, many articles on it. And to, to dumb it down, you say the Haskalah in the non-from variety. There was also from variety. The non-from variety was appealing uh, to many of the successful business families. They didn't want to be, you know, let's put it this way. The girls didn't want to be told what to wear, what not to wear. Uh, the guys didn't want to be told the same thing. And, you know, they, they got sick and tired of the old Jewish ways. And uh, to look funny and change and not, you know, and, and, and uh, all the customs. They wanted to Europeanize. And uh, this was a minority, but an important minority. If you're talking about a community altogether of 2,000, see, even if I told you 20 families or 30 families were modern or left-wing, that's a, and they were the wealthy 20 families or 30 families, you already understand the situation. And uh, the trouble, therefore, with Sam Sofer was that he was taken in mainly because he... he among other reasons, he didn't have children, so therefore he wouldn't be a lot to support. They didn't realize he was going to bring 500 children, you know. And uh, it got out of hand because he was real for me, as you can imagine. And when they tried to open a, uh, a modern school, which was happening all over the place, this is the middle of the first wave of the Haskalah. So it happened in Prague, it happened in, in Hamburg, it happened in Berlin, everywhere. Uh, to use modern terminology, they were switching from, let's say, a TA to, uh, you know, like a betafilla or maybe a, 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 something like that, a little bit less, even. Uh, not a Salman Shek, they're not, but, you know, something like a left-wing betafilla. They were switching to that all across Germany, which, which ended up giving the kids a poor Jewish education, if you're talking about Talmud and Torah and all, Toshua and all that. And he was obviously opposed to it. And although it's a long story, and I don't have time for long stories, clashes emerged, and... You know, he, he, he closed down, he, he prevented their school from opening, so they counterattacked. And over the course of years, uh, they closed down his yeshiva because they told him, they did malshin him, they told the government, this guy's holding back progress, and in his school, there's no secular studies, and it's, uh, you know, it's turning into, like you say, ISIS, madrasas, you know, it's, it's their breeding grounds for religious extremism. There's truth in all that, by the way. And uh, the government in, in Hungary, which where he was in, you know, closed down the yeshiva, can imagine what a shock that was to him, made him hate them very, very much. There's a whole long mice I once wrote up in a story in a book I wrote about how things change. It's a, it, it's, it's too long to go into now, but basically a very weird sort of thing happened uh, because this rich guy died in Vienna and he didn't like his non-Jewish wife and by the time the story's all over, the people who got the money because he didn't have kids were these two frummies and they joined the board of directors in the city, and they swung it in the direction of Sam Sofer, and he was able to recover and get the yeshiva back. So like for a year or something like that, or two years, whatever, his yeshiva was busted, and all the boys had to go elsewhere, and then they were able to come back. It's a very dramatic in the story, but like I say, now's not the time to go into it, or at least I don't have the time today. Uh, so here's a guy that is um, starting in 1806. By the time you get to the 1810s, the tension with the left wing is getting big. By the time you get to early 1820s, they closed down his yeshiva. By the time you get to the late 1820s, he bounced back, and the yeshiva came back. Um, and what it meant was that in this in in the in the struggle he had with the local non from, uh, they were not going to crush him. Now, I don't say he could crush them either, but not going to crush him. And that meant 
that as a result of this, uh, he was able to have a big influence um, on his community. And he didn't make them all very from, because that's not true. But on the other hand, the official Kehillah would stay from, and that was a key element in what Pressburg was, and remained for the next 100 years, literally. And as a result, uh, his style uh, dominated the culture in Western Hungary, mainly because, first of all, he was very charismatic, and second of all, he, if you had a sheep of hundreds of boys, he graduated X number of guys with smicha. And he was very practical because he himself had learned the hard way. You got to give the guy smicha, but then you also have to uh, find him a job. And so he was also, um, let me put it this way, he wasn't like some yeshivas today in which they give a guy smicha, won't help him find a stellar. Um, I know that doesn't exist in, in, in Maryland, but it exists elsewhere. <laughs> and uh, so a guy has a, a guy learns up a storm, and then he's very good. And they even give him a smicha, and then what do you do with it? You know, how do you find a job? And these people have a hard time finding situations, and many get frustrated, and so on and so forth. The Sam Silver was a one-man placement bureau also. So when he gave a guy smicha, he also was constant correspondent from all over the place in Hungary and in Central Europe, and he found his guy Stellars. And what that means is that if you graduate with him, uh, and you were married to the right person and all the rest of it, because it is Central Europe, uh, you'll get a job as a rov or dying, or something like that, in one of these towns and communities, which therefore means that he has his agents scattered all over Hungary, certainly over Western Hungary and Central Europe. And every one of his students was a wannabe, meaning he, the, the, the Rebbe was a hero to him, because Samsab was this charismatic person, and every student who could wanted to imitate as much as possible the Samsab, which is the highest form of flattery. And so every guy tried to do what he did. As I told you before, he excelled as a POSIC. So that means that anybody who was a student of his is going to go out there and get a job, be a rov, and be a POSIC, you know, not getting the halachal maisa, not just alumnus, but the halachal maisa, very important in, in, in the Sam Sofer system, old school. Uh, not only that, but just like Sam Sofer expressed his POSIC identity by writing chubas all over the place, every one of his students who could, who got a job in Hungary over the next 100 years, 100 years, uh, wrote Charles and Chubas if he was able to and published them. That's why you have a lot of these Hungarian Chubas from that nobody's ever heard of. And um, in addition to that, the Chassam Silver set up a yeshiva. Every one of his students who could, set, and, and they all did, uh, set up a yeshiva in his town. Could be a small town. Could be five, ten, fifteen, twenty families, something like that. He'll make a yeshiva of one or two guys. On the other hand, there are other communities that were bigger. They could have a yeshiva of twenty, thirty guys, or sometimes bigger. 90, 100 guys. And some of them hit the big jackpot, had a sheep of 100, 200, 300. You had such things down until the Holocaust. And that's why Lithuania and Hungary, the two places that had old big sheba systems, all of us have heard about the literature sheba because they got a lot of press. Uh, you know, Tells and Slobodka and, and that sort of thing, you know, Mir. But uh, not so many people know that in Hungary there was a whole network of these Chassam Silver type yeshivas. And uh, that's because of this powerful personality he projected and all the students wanted to imitate him and that, and that is what he wanted a third area in which he excelled was as a speaker he was one of the great darshans and therefore all of his students learned Hilchus darshan as the best they could and they and they tried to be like him now i tell you the truth I pretty much I le- I'm, I'm into the uh, drushish literature you probably know that from these talks I give 
on, on some of them. And I've always liked, for example, Yonas Abishit's uh, stuff, Yaris Debash, I liked a lot. And Ner to Behuda's Drushes, I liked because I did work on him, and some other people as well. The Chassam Silver has a whole bunch of these drushes, and they're really good. I never could get into them. I don't know why. There's something about it. Every time I read them, it gets like boring. Uh, but it's my fault. It's not anybody else's. Uh, the stuff is good. And I want to mention this to you because if anybody's listening out there who's a rabbi or ever needs a, a, a Dvartor or something, if you want some good stuff, they recently published, like a year or two ago, something like that in Israel, They uh, because the Chassam Silver is, is so big, so he's okay to get a lot of play in the book industry. And they published like six volumes, five volumes of uh, the Drosha's Chassam Sofer. And they're highly organized and very classified. It's really great. And, you know, they're done according to um, time of year for, you know, one volume is for Tishrei and one volume is for Hanukkah and one volume is for funerals and that kind of thing. I mean, they really did a very, very good job. I think they called Nussenzweig or something like that. And uh, the edition. And if you're interested in that sort of thing at all, you need it for a bris or anything like that. If you get this set, which is five volumes, very nice print too, um, you're set, baby, because he has a lot of material that's dense. Some stuff is a style that you know gets very into the you know lumdish thing, and then he switches totally to a different voice. Um, so this is something I should really, uh, I'm telling to myself, I should get into more. Uh, that's why I bought the set. It used to be when I was young, they had the Jarus Moshe, and when I was a young, 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 I remember long, long ago, I used to use it a fair amount, uh, but then I got out of that. But uh, they're good, and therefore you have somebody who who is A plus in all the three areas of the traditional rabbinate, in the drushes, in the uh, psak, and in the magachir, and that's why Chassam Sover left all these legacies: the chiduchi Chassam Sover, and the chuvas Chassam Sover, and the other one, and the drushes Chassam Sover. You know, these have all become classics. Now, in the short time I have left over, I want to make one or two points because this is really something. As you can imagine, we have the Chassam Sofer that I'm not really doing justice. This goes for a couple hours. But I just want to make, like I say, one or two points. And it's this. The Chassam Sofer became famous, among other reasons, for many reasons. One of them is, as you'll see a lot of times in the writings, uh, the opponent of Reform Judaism. When he was in his late 50s, um, that's when the Reform Movement began. Although its origins were a little earlier, and he knew all about it. Because he was a German Jew, Right. He was from there. See, he knew what happened with the Haskell and the other things back in Germany. That's why he was so uh, opposed to it spreading into Hungary. Um, now, in 1819, the first Reformed Temple was uh, founded in Hamburg. And, you know, they claim that there's nothing particularly wrong from the strictly halachic point of view with having a guy play the organ or changing the davening here and there. And uh, the Chassam Sofer led the countercharge and they published a famous book, booklet called Ela Divri Abris. I have it somewhere, in which his writings, knows the Gedolim at that time condemned it, not in a way that would make any difference in Reform Jew, it was all, all rabbinic Hebrew, and the kind of arguments that were lumdish arguments, and so it wouldn't make an impression on the average person. But if you're from it, it would make an impression. You understand? Know, if you're Talmud Chacham, it make an impression. Now, uh, it's very interesting that he really went mainly after Reform, not for what you think, which is, because you're violating halacha, all the rest of it, he couldn't stand their national treason. You took out Sion from the davening, you took out Mashiach from the davening, what kind of stinking Jew are you? You understand? In other words, it's very interesting. It's not that, oh, the guy was Machal Shabbos. That you've always had. But someone should reject the basic tenets of Judaism, have no national pride. That to him is disgusting. 
And don't tell me you're not being loyal to the state, because the government doesn't mind if you're praying that the Jews should all get back to Israel. The government wouldn't mind that either. <laughs> let's, let's be honest, he says. It's not a chesarn in the patriotism. Um, this became a key element in what we would call reform, and even in a lot of secular Judaism in the 19th century, a rejection, to use modern terminology, anti-Zionist, but from a non-from perspective, anti-Zion from a non-from perspective. So therefore, you really are a traitor to your Jewish background. Uh, in my opinion, this led him, after 1819, to put a lot of emphasis on Zionism, which you see appearing over and over again in his writings. It's very, very interesting. Now, obviously, I don't mean Zionism in the non-from sense, uh, of course, but in his own, if I can use the terminology, Torah Zionism, if I can use that terminology, uh, see, start to write that people should move back to Israel, they should do the carbon Pesach, uh, they should do all kinds of things like this. Uh, and Eretz Yisrael, he, he had a lot to do with them. His students set up the Kola of Hungary and Yerushalayim. Um, many of his famous Talmidim were among the first people to move to Eretz Yisrael later in the 19th century when the opportunity presented itself. If you read up the, um, what do you call it, the famous, the classic example is from Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld, who was a Talmud of a Talmud. Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld was later, but he was a student of the Ksav Sofer and the Rav Avram Shag, both of whom, of course, were Talmidim of the Chassam Sofer, and they want to make Aliyah already in the middle 1800s. Obviously, again, not in a non-from sense, that goes without saying, but a totally from sense. And the beginnings of modern Israel, in some parts, are due to the influence of Sam Sofer sending a lot of Hungarian-type Jews to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, his students' students started Petach Tikva, for example. And it's, it's very interesting. In other words, is if, if Herzl and these other guys didn't come along... I mean, listen, we'll never know. But the the it is just very interesting that there's a strain of, what I, for want of a better word, you can call it a certain proto-Zionism, uh, very strongly in the writings of Sam Sofer. And uh, the reform movement, I think, really triggered him, like a heavy emphasis on this, a Jew should be longing for Eretz Yisrael, literally. And he was therefore very opposed, unlike many of his contemporaries, to civil rights for the Jews and emancipation. I just recall a famous speech that he gave in which, uh, you know, he's saying, I'm against civil rights for the Jews. You're against civil rights for the Jews? You want to live in a ghetto? That your children can't uh, go here and have that job and all the rest? His answer is yes. Uh, how can somebody make an argument like that? It's not calculated to win you too many friends because most people are not going to live in terrible conditions. And he was a spiritual person and he said, I'll give you a marshal. Once upon a time, there was a king, and the king had a son, and the son got the father angry, and therefore the king exiled the son to a faraway island, and the son was pining away to return, and he could never get back from that island. And one day, the son sees a fleet of ships coming to this deserted island, and he sees the national flag. He's really happy. He said, my father's coming to take me back. But no, what happens is it's a fleet that was sent by the father to build him a big fancy palace and things like that on this desert island. So he'll live a life of luxury on the desert island. And the son was very bitterly disappointed because the son doesn't live in a, in, a, in a palace on a desert island. The son wants to go back to the father. Now, that's the marshal. What's, uh, notice, you get it. We don't want to have a palace in Hungary to live a good life in Germany or America or something like that. We want to go back to the father. We want to go back to Israel. So it's just very interesting that you find the big proto-Zionist kind of thing in the uh, in the writings of Sam Silver, which I think was triggered actually by the uh, reform movement's rejection of Zionism. Again, 
in in uh, for religious reasons, or in their case for irreligious reasons. Uh, another thing has to do with the Chassam Sober, let me just think, would be his attitude towards Limurichol. Uh, many people have created, let, let, let me put it this way, the Chassam Sober had a lot of Talmidim, and, I mean, a lot. And uh, it was a time of intellectual stress and storm. And so, if you have hundreds of students from all over the place, they're not going to be of one type. Um, not not, not going to be one type. And so if I can use modern terminology, he had more modernisha types, he had less modernisha types. He had people that were more open to, uh, what shall I say, you know, the modern world, and people less open to the modern world. So there are some students at the Sam Sofer who went to college, and later on would get PhDs and things like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, a famous rabbi in Baltimore from the 19th century, uh, what was his name, Ilwi, uh, Bernard Ilwi, was a student and had smicha from the Chassam Sofer, which is pretty impressive. And he also got a PhD going to college somewhere uh, in Central Europe. And there were others. On the other hand, Chassam Sofer was opposed in general to people going to college. He would prefer people should just do learning only. Uh, on the other hand, he, you know, uh, he didn't go and, 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 and ban anybody for it, but he discouraged it. So you see this in some yeshivas today also. And the result is that they're formed among his students like different factions. Who's the real Hassam Sofer? And when he died, the right wing uh, formed a very strong right wing under Abhila Kalamai, Abhila Lichtenstein was one of Talmidim, who held that all the others don't understand who Hassam Sofer was. And he was super duper right wing. And, and the slightest deviation from anything makes you a kaifer. Um, and then at the same time, there were people on quote unquote the left wing who says not true. And, you know, I spoke to Chassam Sofer. My rabbi said you could do this and that and the other, you know. And it, there, there was a big fight in Hungary in the 19th century over the very question of who was the real Chassam Sofer? Was he extreme, to use modern terminology, was he extreme right winger or was he a middle road or all that kind of thing? It was just very interesting because this informed a whole lot of the politics in Hungary, Jewish rabbinic politics, all throughout the 19th century. But the overwhelming trend of Chassam Sofer's influence was in a very from direction. And as a result, what you had in Hungary over the, as the 1800s and 1900s went by was a rather strong uh, from kite, uh, but also accompanied by a certain amount of acculturation, especially in Western Hungary. And the question was always, like we have in America, how far to go? How modern can you be and still say from? Or better yet, how modern can you be and still say yeshivish? You know, these are questions that we deal with all the time. And, you know, Hashkafa issues and things of that nature. It's very interesting. So he left a, uh, an ambiguous legacy in the sense that uh, from his thousand, he must have several thousand students, from thousand students, different images of who the Rebbe was uh, emerged from the writings. It's just very unusual. Uh, now, uh, I told you before, he got married when he was in his ooh, late 20s, I think, something like that. Or actually, he was probably like 26. And his wife was like 29 or whatever. It's very unusual. If I remember the story correctly, she couldn't have kids. But once he promised to marry, he went through with it. Something like that. And as they say, they stayed married. Uh, she died in 1812. So they were married for about 25, 26 years. And so he was about uh, 50 when his wife died. And then he remarried. There's a whole story to it. A girl that was about 20 who was a Almona, she was the daughter of Rabbi Kivager. 
she, I'll say it again. She was already a widow at that time. That means she married a guy when he was, she was 18, 17. And he died a year or two later. So she was 20 years a widow. See, even there was a big age difference, but she was willing and he was willing by the time the story's over. And uh, they got married and they were married for 20 years and then she died. Okay, so uh, they got married in 1812, she died in 1832. In those 20 years, she had 11 kids. Hear what I say? 11 kids. Uh, it's just very interesting because this week people were asking me uh, what are the names of Jewish uh, children, what are Jewish names, other names, uh, things like that. And, um, uh, you know, he had 11 kids. One second. Uh, he had four boys. One was his son, Avram Shmuel. That's the Sopsover. And his son, Shimon. Then his son, Yozpo, which is old German for Yosef. And Yitzhak And he had seven daughters. One was Hindel. One was Gittel. One was Yentel. One was Simcha. Isn't that interesting? His daughter's name was Simcha. One was Reichel. One was Rachel. And one was Esther. So it's just, uh, you know... Uh, in there, and I believe one didn't make it, so like 10 survived or something like that. Uh, so here you have a person that uh, is having children in his 50s and his 60s. His wife is having children in her 20s and 30s. But she died, like I say, you know, 20 years later, so she was not at all old. Um, and a couple years later, he remarried, so he's married three times grand total. Uh, his last wife his his wife, the Rebbe Kibbeke's daughter her name was Sarah Cyril, that's just interesting and then he married his third wife, who was an Almona so he was already old and I think she was too if I remember correctly and uh, and that, you know they were married for seven years till he died or whatever, how many years, five years or whatever uh, so you know, he got remarried in his 70s and uh, so it's just an interesting uh, you know, human being uh, kind of story because uh, that means when he was the Rav in Pressburg, having all these fights, I mean, he was, that's why he was having children. Uh, and uh, um, these kids went on to found, you know, famous families and all the rest of it. So it was uh, uh, the Ksav Sofer, although he never had good health and he died kind of young also, around 50. So um, you see, every, I just want to conclude because I'm already running over time as it is. I knew I would run over time with this. Uh, if you want to know the Ksav Sofer is, I don't mean this to be supercilious. Look at his shouts and chubas, because some of these people like this, he's a Nodibuhuda type. He's very personal when he writes this stuff. He says, I'm happy to hear from you, or what you wrote me was stupid, or I was in the middle of this when you uh, contacted me, and here's why I disagree with you. The personality comes through. You see, it was a, like I said before, he had to be extremely charismatic. Couldn't be an austere and remote figure, uh, because then you want to attract boys to come to you all the time. Uh, he had to be someone that people felt, well, this is a Rebbe I can connect with, and, you know, I can explain my problems to, and obviously he's on a different level than I am, and there's no question that Sam Sofer, the Central European Yekisha, he insisted on, you know, all the privileges of rank, because that's how he did in those days. I remember reading that he, uh, I think I'm right about this, he, um, first of all, he was a model, so he wanted to do all the brisson. Second of all, he got two aliyahs every Shabbos, like Shlishi and Shishi. <laughs> no, there's two aliyahs on Shabbos morning. And I can only surmise Shlishi is because that's the most chashav, and Shishi is also chashav. And, you know, what's he trying to grab all the, uh, the kibbutim? You try to put the Rabbanus on a high pedestal. And in Hungary, in the Oberlander culture, the Rav was on a high pedestal. That, that's true. It's one of the reasons why, it's not the only one of the reasons why 
the Oberlanders were fairly successful in combating modernity. Uh, now's not the time to go into it, I'm a little late. But in Hungary, they spread uh, several dozen yeshivas, and they had a fair degree of success because the Chassam Silver is actually associated with a historical phenomenon that you and I know today, and that is the yeshiva becomes an instrument of socialization, not simply an institution of knowledge. Uh, they used to take boys in his time, 10, 11, 12 years old. You'd be there to like 18, 19, 20 years old. During those eight years, you come there to be brainwashed. You know what I say, brainwashed in Torah and Yiddishkeit. That's what you're there for. And so you wake up real early in the morning, and you have these very intense sessions, and he had his you know, way of giving shiurim, and, uh, you know, he darshan also on the piyutim, and every day read from the Chavos Alavavos, and it's a very intense kind of atmosphere, and they watch you very closely, how you daven in the Chassam Sober's time, and, and in Hungary, how you daven was monitored almost as much, or sometimes more, than how you learned. I mean, it's, it's, it's the Hungarian Russian Shivas would say like this, I had you, I had your father, you're smarter, but your father daven better, I have more respect for the father. That kind of way of talking, which you wouldn't really hear, in the Lithuanian she world. Oh my lord, this is so, uh, the time has really run out. So with that, that's the small, short contribution I can make to the Chassam Sober. And now, fortunately, I have a lot of uh, pleasant shorts to attend to, so I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities, or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.